If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hola. Hello. This call is being translated. Abuela, listen to what my phone can do. Abuela, escucha lo que mi teléfono puede hacer. Wow. Ahora dime sobre tu novia nueva. Wow. Now tell me about this new girlfriend. Huh? Tú sabes lo que dije. You know what I said. Language is no longer a barrier. Thanks to Live Translate with Galaxy AI on Samsung Galaxy S24 Ultra. Learn more at Samsung.com. Samsung account login required. Calls must be made using the native Samsung dialer. It's hard not to add a side of hot, crispy hash browns to your favorite McDonald's breakfast. It's even harder not to eat said hash browns before you get home. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Today, Healthier is happening at CVS Health in more ways than you've ever seen. It's wellness destinations for seniors, including select locations at Oak Street Health and CVS Pharmacy. It's doctors, nurses, pharmacists, and everyone in between, offering quality care and support virtually, in person, and on the phone. It's in-home evaluations through Signify Health and meeting mental health needs through Aetna. And those are just a few of the ways Healthier is happening. To see more, visit cvshealth.com slash healthierhappenstogether. CVS Pharmacy, Oak Street Health, CVS Specialty, Signify Health, and Aetna are part of CVS Health. Eligibility and services vary by location and individual. Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. Throughout the Cold War, the KGB would stop at virtually nothing in its attempts to spread chaos and confusion in the West. That's what Mark Hollingsworth argues in his new book, Agents of Influence, How the KGB Subverted Western Democracies. Here, in conversation with Spencer Mizzen, Mark charts the honey traps, smear campaigns and fake news that were deployed in an effort to win the great struggle between East and West. So, Mark, in the opening pages of Agents of Influence, you point out that political warfare, the use of covert operations to influence and subvert events in foreign countries, have been an instrument of foreign policy for centuries. So why have you decided to zone in on the KGB? The idea for this book came about um, after the 2016 US presidential election, when it was alleged that uh, Russian intelligence agencies were subverting and disrupting and meddling in the presidential election campaign. And there was allegations of interference in that election campaign. So I thought to myself, 
when the Mueller report came out, that was the investigation into it, I thought, well, did the Russians do this before? Had, was the KGB active in, in, in this kind of covert activity in terms of disrupting and um, interfering elections? So I looked at, in the archives, looked at the historical record and found that actually the KGB and Russian spies had been involved in this activity since the 1917 Russian Revolution. So this, this was um, something that they'd always done for really for the last hundred years. Now, why did the Soviets invest so much time, money and effort in subverting the West? I mean, why did they regard espionage and subterfuge as such a potent weapon in a way that perhaps their opponents didn't? Well, uh, the KGB and its predecessors in terms of the Russian intelligence agencies um, were given a license to to do pretty much anything to disrupt, destabilize, uh, subvert, weaken um, the West, NATO countries, the US, UK. And so they focused on disinformation, a lot of forgery of documents, recruiting agents to to peddle their propaganda and um, and sort of hidden messages through through the media, and so they were only accountable really to the Communist Party and the and the, and the Kremlin in the Soviet Union. They weren't accountable to any rule of law, and they could do pretty much whatever they wanted. But they decided, or they believed, that the most effective way of destabilizing the capitalist countries, which were regarded as the enemy of the Soviet Union, was was this form of, of espionage. And actually, it wasn't really actually spying. It was actually spreading disinformation, um, you know, leaking false stories, fabricating documents, um, and, and a lot of, you know, innuendo behind the scenes, you know, spreading rumors and gossip and malicious uh, untruths just to, just to create chaos as much as anything else in the West. So would you argue that the fact that the, the KGB was part of an authoritarian regime basically assisted them in their efforts because they didn't have kind of checks and balance that Western intelligence agencies were subject to. Yes, I mean, the the KGB were allowed to do pretty much anything. I mean, they reported back to the Kremlin and the Soviet Union, and there was a, there was a fair amount of bureaucracy and paperwork, but they were basically told, you know, you can go out there, you can lie, you can distort, you can do pretty much whatever you like, even assassinate. Um, and as long as the target is what they call the main adversary, which is the United States, the UK, and NATO, they could do pretty much whatever they liked as long as they didn't get caught. Obviously, in, during the Cold War, the CIA and MI6 were involved in various skullduggery and, and secret operations as well. They were involved in, in uh, organizing coups um, in Iran in 1953 and in various different countries, Chile in 1973, where uh, Western intelligence agencies were involved in this kind of political activity in the sense of trying to overthrow a regime. But certainly in more recent years, since the 1970s, there's a lot more accountable uh, CIA, certainly, um, for what they do. So therefore, they've not been as ruthless as the KGB because there is that legal and political accountability really since the 1970s. 
So the West kind of liberal sensibilities made them a little bit more queasy about all this then? Yes, I mean, basically, uh, <laughs> I think the British approach to espionage and, and the intelligence agencies is that it's it's kind of a morally ambiguous view of it. It's slightly grubby, profession, vulgar, necessary, but we don't really like doing it. But in, in Russia and in the Soviet Union, if you were a KGB officer, it was regarded as a badge of honor. And so it was regarded as something to be proud of, um, and they were given extensive privileges, whereas in the West, it was less so. So I think um, probably the liberal sensitivities, you're quite right, is, is shows that they wouldn't get involved in that so much. So, so for example, with blackmail, some of the West intelligence agencies did get involved, I think, in some honey trapping, but that it was just not as pervasive and not as um, ruthless as the, as the KGB, as the historical record shows. Okay, so if we can um, rewind a little, can you talk a little bit about the origins of the secret police in Russia? Because the, the, the KGB, I guess, were hardly the first organisation in Russia, stroke the Soviet Union, to employ the dark arts of espionage and uh, subterfuge. So so where did this all begin? Well, you can trace the origins of the KGB and the Russian secret services way back to the 16th century. I mean, you know, Peter the Great, Ivan the Terrible. You know, Russia's never had a democracy. It's always been ruled by some form of authoritarian state, uh, some form of dictatorship. And going back centuries, um, previous rulers all had secret police to basically, in those days, going back to the 16th century through to the 20th century, it was used much more to suppress dissent, any kind of op- political opposition, spies and, and the intelligence agencies were used to uh, to spy on any any kind of critic or to suppress any kind of opponent. And then under the Tsar in the 19th century, it was just, I mean, he was just as ruthless as the communists, uh, if not more in terms of, of, of using spies and the Russian intelligence to, to suppress any kind of dissent. And then uh, in the 1917, with the communist revolution, Lenin uh, understood uh, the importance of a secret service, and they set up the Cheka, and that was used, that was an intelligence agency, but it was also as part of the process of basically shooting and executing and torturing any what they call counter-revolutionaries, which is basically political dissidents. And so... It was at that time in the 1920s, it, uh, then Lenin actually believed in disinformation. I mean, there was one document from 1921 where they said that uh, there's nothing wrong with lying, you know, and being honest is just a, a bourgeois concept. So it was like almost ingrained into the system that deception and disinformation was part of the foreign policy strategy, and they had no conscience about it. So that really was ingrained in the 1920s. And then obviously Stalin used the Russian intelligence. It was then called the NKVD in the 1930s. And obviously during the Second World War, it was, you know, because Soviet Union was on the side of the West against the Nazis, it wasn't as involved that much. And then we had the Cold War 
after the Second World War, and then it really kicked off in terms of uh, disinformation and, and espionage and propaganda and secret recruitment of politicians, honey trapping. It was full, full on, as it were. And the, and the KGB was actually only set up in 1954. So the period of when it was at its most ruthless, most active was probably from the early 50s through to the late 80s. Okay, so I mean, you've, you've mentioned them already, but I just wonder if you can go into a bit more detail on some of the tactics that KGB agents were trained uh, to deploy in the West. I mean, what, what was in your average KGB agent's playbook? Well, for the KGB, actually espionage and spying on people uh, in the West was actually less important than disinformation and deception. And so they were trained, obviously, to recruit agents, uh, you know, undercover. They would pretend to be journalists or businessmen or bankers. But actually, a lot of their uh, focus was on disinformation in terms of spreading false stories about what the West were doing, that the West was planning a nuclear war and they were just about to unleash cruise missiles and destroy the world. Um, and so they did it in, in, in really two formats. One was that they would they would plant a false story, usually in a obscure newspaper in the third world, in Africa or the Middle East or in Asia, and plant that a fake story there. And they would let that story be published in a relatively obscure newspaper and then in a few months later, then they would tip off a Western or more uh, mainstream newspaper and say, look, this is there's a story here about the West uh, starting a nuclear war or whatever it was, you know, and, and you should check out this article that was published in Sri Lanka or something. And then because it had been published, it's a bit like today, if it's on the internet, people believe it, it had a certain amount of veneer of credibility. And that's one thing they did. A second thing they did was they literally would just fabricate documents. They would just fake documents about whatever it is, a letter from the King of Spain to Reagan, you know, who would complain about American influence in the West. or They would just crudely make things up. And it was a huge industry. They had a factory of faking documents. And they would just leak and spread all these fake documents. And they didn't mind that much if only a few of them were believed because that was enough. And then thirdly, I think agents of influence is is basically a term for hiring or recruiting uh, journalists, politicians, businessmen who would spread disinformation um, in a more subtle way um, in parliament and chance conversations, leaking of stories. And so I think those were the that was that was certainly the main ones. And then obviously, <laughs> you've got honey trapping. So that's another form of influence in the sense of being able to blackmail and recruit someone in the West to, to leak in intelligence. And that's a whole saga of what they did. And they did that very professionally by having this female spies uh, who were very professionally trained to honey trap gullible Western men. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down 
and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hola. Hello. This call is being translated. Abuela, listen to what my phone can do. Abuela, escucha lo que mi teléfono puede hacer. Wow. Ahora dime sobre tu novia nueva. Wow. Now tell me about this new girlfriend. Huh? Tú sabes lo que dije. You know what I said. Language is no longer a barrier. Thanks to Live Translate with Galaxy AI on Samsung Galaxy S24 Ultra. Learn more at Samsung.com. Samsung account login required. Calls must be made using the native Samsung dialer. So we can just touch upon a couple of examples. I'm quite interested in a classic smear campaign that you describe in the book involving the Conservative MP Anthony Courtney. I wonder if you could tell me a little bit about that case, because that was I thought that was really interesting. So a classic example of a KGB smear operation against the West was the smearing and attempted uh, blackmail, although I was not sure whether he was actually blackmailed, of a Conservative MP called Anthony Courtney who was a Conservative MP in the 1960s. He was very critical of the KGB, a a very staunch, hostile opponent of the Soviet Union. He was publicly critical of them using the Soviet embassy in London as a sort of haven of of espionage and that they they were given too many privileges and the British government was soft on the KGB activities in London. And so what they did was they wanted to take him out. And the way they took out Mr. Courtney, was they knew that actually he was traveling to Moscow quite a lot because although he was an MP in the 1960s, he also had a business. And and the irony is that he actually was going to Moscow quite a lot for business meetings. He was trying. He was advising Western companies to uh, sell goods to to the Soviet Union. So they noticed this. And so what the KGB did against this member of parliament was that they also knew that he liked women and and uh, had affairs and all the rest. So they set up a tourist guide who was in fact a KGB spy and they they tasked her to ensnare Courtney and basically have an affair. So she honey-trapped Courtney and they took in what they usually do is they hire a hotel room uh, the MP was there with the KGB honey trapper. They took the photographs and then they had the evidence against him. Then what they did was quite interesting. They delayed using those photographs until he became more critical of the Soviet Union. And then they unleashed the material and they sent it anonymously. So they had these uh, photographs of the MP with this woman 
and then they sent it anonymously to MPs, political opponents, journalists, House of Commons, 10 Downing Street, basically to smear him. Here is your MP and he's sleeping with Russians and, you know, all the rest of it. Obviously, it was reported back to him. MI5 did an investigation into what happened. There was also some concern whether he was a, some kind of double agent. And uh, they discovered that it was the KGB who had honey-trapped him and smeared him in this way. And it did have a real impact because his constituency in Harrow in North London decided that he was not, you know, they saw these mm, photographs and some of it appeared in the press. And so th they decided to try and deselect him. And eventually he lost his seat. I mean, it was a safe seat, and eventually he lost his seat by a, a tinier num number of votes, like 300 votes, and it was almost definitely due to the KGB smear operation. They basically got rid of an MP who was critical of them. And there was one interesting phrase that you use in the book, um, where you say that somebody believed that they were cracking the whip as well, I think was the terminology used. They, they were kind of, via this smear campaign, they were also sending a message to somebody else? I mean, do you give much credence to that? Yeah, I do. So uh, as part of the Courtney affair, there was a politician called George Whig, who was an he was an MP, but he was like the intelligence advisor to the prime minister at the time in the 1960s, who was Harold Wilson. And this politician, George Whig, he uh, believed that what they did, what the KGB did when they sent, when they distributed anonymously these photographs of Courtney, because uh, they did it, they sent it, you know, to the news of the world, and they and it was like almost semi-public. And that what he believed, and I agree with him, was that also what they were they trying to get to, to take him out and damage him, but also they were sending out a message: if you criticize the Soviet Union or the KGB, this is what's going to happen to you. We're going to go after you. We're going to find a way of smearing you and basically removing you as, an, as a member of parliament. So I think they were sending out a message because those photographs and there was like a anonymous sort of spreadsheet as well were distributed quite widely to various people and I think they wanted it to come out to some extent. And also can you tell us about some Labour politicians who were quite sympathetic to um, the Soviet Union in, in the early days of the Cold War and how did the KGB capitalise on that fact? Well, I think you have to go back historically in terms of Labour MPs' relationship with the Soviet Union because the 1930s, before Stalin's crimes and Lenin's crimes were really fully exposed and known, uh, a lot of Labour MPs were sympathetic to the Soviet Union. They didn't know the full horror of uh, the crimes of Stalin particularly. And also at the time, obviously during the Second World War, the Soviet Union was an ally. And so... There were a, a number of Labour MPs who were sympathetic to the communist cause, and, and they weren't necessarily communists, but some of them were, were kind of secret communists. And so when they uh, embraced Marxist views, it wasn't necessarily such a controversial view at the time. It became later when um, Soviet Union, you know, invaded uh, Hungary in 1956 and Czechoslovakia in 1968, and then the full cr crimes of Stalin emerged. So that's the background to Labour MPs' involvement with the KGB. And so when later in the 1950s, 60s, and 70s, they cultivated uh, a certain number of Labour MPs, those Labour MPs, you know, they couldn't bring themselves to admit that their life's 
political work was, you know, could be sort of not destroyed but undermined by the realities of life uh, in the Soviet Union, where basically the communist economic model wasn't working. A lot of the money was was taken out of the country into KGB accounts, and so. Ray up in the 1950s, 60s, and 70s, these Labour MPs still spoke to the KGB. You can get into a sort of semantic argument about whether they were spies. I don't think they were actual KGB agents, but they were certainly helping the KGB in terms of giving them information, uh, providing introductions, helping them with background information. So in that sense, they were agents of influence in the sense of informally helping um, the KGB really way up until the 1980s. Would one of those MPs be John Stonehouse, who faked his own death in Miami? Could you tell us a little bit about that, please? Yeah, Yeah. so one of the MPs who was... Uh, who worked for Eastern Europe uh, intelligence agencies. And and the key point to make is that during the Cold War with the uh, Eastern European countries, particularly um, Czechoslovakia, was very close to what the KGB were doing. So they effectively were like subsidiaries or satellite intelligence agencies of the KGB. And so uh, some MPs worked a lot for the Czechs, and then one of them was a Labour MP called John Stonehouse, who actually was a minister as well in the Wilson government in the 1960s. And he, I think, he did it as much for money rather than ideology. In fact, almost certainly it was more to do with money. But he worked as like a, a secret uh, agent for the Czechs. And then he got into trouble financially, and then it became well known how he then tried to fake his own death, and he got caught. But the Czechs, you have to remember that the in Eastern Europe, the Eastern Europe intelligence agencies were basically uh, a part of the, of the KGB. I mean, even though they were separate countries, they were like an adjunct. And so they reported to the Kremlin. So if you worked for the for the Czechs or the East Germans or the Romanians or the Bulgarians, in, in effect, you were working for the KGB. So in cases like the one with John Stonehouse, did he actually admit that he'd worked for Czech spies and for the Czech government. Is, yeah. that, is that how we know all about this? Yeah, I think Stonehouse, it's certainly, I think it, with Stonehouse, it emerged at the time, but also in more recent years, the archives of the Czech intelligence agencies have um, emerged and they're even now they're, they're quite open for inspection. So the, the relationship between Labour MPs, I think was even one Conservative MP and their relationship with um, Eastern Europe intelligence agencies is now known. Um, And obviously with the Stasi in East Germany, the Czech intelligence agencies, their archives are relatively open. And so that's how we know. Now, do you think that the West was in any way hamstrung by complacency? I mean, was this attitude typical among Britain's elite? Yes. I mean, I think... And during the Cold War, the problem was that British Prime Minister, particularly Harold Macmillan and to some extent Alec Douglas Hume in the early 1960s, regarded the spy world as a sort of rather grubby, vulgar uh, world. And they didn't really want to know too much about it. And that's why Philby, Burgess, Maclean and the famous Cambridge Five went undetected for so long because they didn't really want to know uh, the, the, the truth. And there was an element of just class bias in the sense that they couldn't believe that upper-class English gentlemen could, could betray their country. But I think they, 
they they preferred to keep it secret. And if Macmillan, particularly when he was prime minister in the early 1960s, his view was if you catch a spy, you don't put him on trial. You you basically put him under your control and you, you use him privately and secretly. And so that's why I think um, Anthony Blunt was not exposed in the 19, early 1960s, even though it was known in the early 1960s that he was a Soviet traitor. And it was only exposed with Anthony Blunt in 1979, only because a historian was going to publish it. And so I think uh, certainly for upper-class patrician conservative politicians, they thought it was all a bit uh, seedy and, you know, it was best not to make it public in any way or make them accountable through being prosecuted. It was best to sort of keep it quiet and then we'll we'll use it, you know, in our own way privately. Now, so far we've been kind of talking of the West as if it's like a just a blob, a single entity, but obviously it was made up of um, numerous countries. Can we draw any distinctions between the way that, for example, Britain, France and United States combated the threat posed by the KGB? I mean, was, for example, Britain more fertile territory than, say, France or, or the United States? Well, the, the KGB focused very much on the United States, what well, they call them the main adversary. Obviously, it was the main enemy. And what is less well known, I think, is that the, the, the amount of money and the amount of, of, of officers that the KGB invested in this operation during the Cold War was much bigger than certainly even I thought. And I've been uh, writing about the intelligence world for, for many years. So when, in my research, I was quite surprised to, to, to discover the, 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 the sheer scale of the operation. And in, in the United States, you know, they had the FBI as counterintelligence to, try, to spy on the spies, as it were. Um, and they found it really difficult. And uh, it took them a long time to combat this. Um, but the, the U.S., you know, had more resources, and I think they sort of hit back and they recruited defectors, and they were able to some extent counter it. Um, in the U.K., in the late 1960s, they were completely overrun. MI5 in London were completely at, at, struggling because there were so many undercover KGB officers running around London, putting people under surveillance, recruiting, uh, spreading disinformation, that in 1971, they decided they had to act. And unusually, it was the civil servants in the Foreign Office rather than MPs or ministers that wanted to act and that they then expelled 105 KGB officers uh, and so-called diplomats from London, um, which is the biggest expulsion, I think, probably in history. And so the UK did react in that way, and I think they've been quite robust in uh, expelling officers. I think in France, certainly uh, the French, particularly the French civil service during the Cold War, was heavily penetrated. France, the Communist Party in France has always been quite strong, and the the level of agent penetration and recruiting agents in France was was certainly quite strong. One agent of influence was actually prosecuted and went to jail. Um, and I think whenever where in Europe, wherever there's a strong communist party, uh, certainly in France and Italy, they're going to have a strong KGB presence. Is there any way of measuring how successful all this was? Could you make an argument, for example, that the Cold War would have ended earlier if the Soviet Union hadn't been so successful 
and so proficient in the dark arts of espionage and subterfuge. There is a case to make that the Cold War would have ended if it wasn't for KGB operations in the West, in the sense that, although obviously CIA and MI6 were involved in uh, deception as well, I mean, we have to be realistic and not naive about this. Um, But I think, you know, it was called the great game. And in in many ways, historians have argued that the Cold War um, went on for so long because it was like two sides you know, attacking each other, spreading false information, recruiting spies, hiring agents, you know, and honey trapping and all the spying that was going on. But it it really was not so much arguing for a a political point of view. It was just trying to destabilize the opposition. So it was like a game. It was like a sports, like a football match. People are, you know, trying to score goals. But there is a case, I think, that the sheer scale of the KGB operation during the Cold War was so pervasive and huge and insidious. And now the documents can show hundreds of millions of dollars, which was a lot of money in the 1970s and 80s, were poured out of the Soviet Union. The money that should have been used to feed the Russian people was actually used for disinformation and uh, deception and recruiting of agents uh, and a number of KGB officers as well in the West showed that, you know, uh, they'd spent a lot of time basically on this operation. And I think that created discord and distrust in terms of diplomatic relations between the West and the Soviet Union, because there was this constant activity by the KGB behind the scenes, which then prolonged the Cold War. So I think there's a strong argument for that. Even And right up until the early mid-80s, there was something called Operation Ryan by, by the KGB, which basically falsely said that um, the US and the UK were about to launch nuclear war. Uh, and that the world is going to end. And that obviously, that extended the Cold War. And attitudes towards the KGB and Russian intelligence changed, I would say, in the mid-1980s when Gorbachev became president of the Soviet Union. And although at the at the beginning of his uh, presidency, Gorbachev was quite pro-KGB, he, he understood he needed active measures in terms of combating the West. And uh, But then what happened was that in around about 1987, there was an investigation into a particularly, I would argue, grotesque act of measure, a piece of disinformation uh, by the KGB, which was that they spread a false rumor that the CIA and the U.S. State Department had deliberately fabricated the AIDS virus and that the AIDS virus and disease was deliberately a product of the CIA and that they deliberately wanted uh, AIDS to infect only gay people and only black people in the United States. And like a lot of conspiracy theories, it doesn't matter how crazy it is, uh, it gets taken up. And so to some extent, that was spread secretly by the KGB through third parties into the US media via laundered via different countries. And it got into a certain amount of the American mainstream uh, opinion that the CIA had fabricated AIDS only to kill black people and gay people. I mean, when you look back at it and you think it's completely absurd, but there was a limited belief in this. And so what happened was the US investigated it and traced it back to the KGB. They put together an incredibly detailed report. They went to Gorbachev and said, here is evidence that your uh, intelligence agencies fabricated this. 
And Gorbachev denied it, refused to believe it. He said, this is outrageous, shocking. So they put Gorbachev in a room and they gave him uh, the report and he read the report and then they came back into the room and Gorbachev was silent and then he paused and then he sighed and then he said, you're right, this has got to stop. And so I think from that moment, certainly in the later part of the Gorbachev years, um, and I think to some extent in the 90s, the, the KGB, what they call active measures, which is just a fancy word for disinformation and dirty tricks, uh, to some extent re- re- receded. Now, there's a figure casting quite a long shadow over modern global geopolitics and over this story as well. And that figure is, of course, Vladimir Putin. Do you believe that we're seeing such tactics being ramped up again under Putin's regime? And if so, is this something we need to be worried about? Yes. So Putin, as most people know, was a KGB officer based in East Germany in the 1980s. And he reveres uh, the KGB. I mean, he even admires the the, the Czechist, the Cheka, which was one of the most brutal, ruthless secret police of all time. And he will defend virtually the historical record of all Russian intelligence agencies, despite their undeniable crimes. So Putin believes that uh, war is just like a continuation of, 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 of politics and that he believes that disinformation, deception, uh, the use of agents is very important. And I think he once said that he was um, amazed at how one spy can influence uh, a war or can influence a situation much more than a military operation. So when Putin launched the invasion of Ukraine, I think there's no doubt at all that the role of the FSB, the current Russian intelligence agency, was incredibly important in spreading disinformation because in a military conflict, you need the support of your own people. And to have the support of your own people, you need a propaganda war. And so the the disinformation spread surreptitiously, subterraneanly by the FSB, you know, not just propaganda on the on the TV news, but through the internet and through social media, has been very important. So there's a legacy of the KGB is in the war in Ukraine today in the sense that um, their methods of disinformation and deception, um, hiring agents of influence, is still active today. The only difference is in the old days, they didn't have the technology. Today, they have the technology to do that. Can you tell us a little bit about Putin's role in the KGB? Well, Putin was in the KGB for most of the 1980s. He was based in St. Petersburg in the Soviet Union, which was mainly in a bureaucratic role. Uh, And then he was moved to Dresden in East Germany in the late 1980s. And the historians are unsure about how influential or how operative, how operational he was. But he was definitely um, a senior KGB officer at the time. And I think uh, politically or historically what's important is that he was there when the Cold War ended in late 1989 and when the the Berlin Wall came down. And he was physically present and he saw what happened and he felt humiliated. He's been mindful of that ever since. 
And that's why I think that's the main reason why he's invaded Ukraine. He wants to restore the old Soviet Union. And for him, the, the FSB, as it is now, is as important as any arm of the Russian state. And you write in a book, don't you, that KGB officers were lionized back in the Soviet Union. I mean, how much does that lionization sort of play into Putin's mindset? So Putin joined the KGB based on on films and novels uh, and TV shows that he watched as a young teenager in Leningrad. So, you know, in those days and still today, um, Russian intelligence officers are are regarded as great heroes, patriots. You know, they're given awards and medals. And they were uh, during the Cold War, they had priv- special privileges. They get paid better. And so I think for, for Putin, they're, they're an integral part of Russian foreign policy. They're not just a, like a uh, an agency that's used just for the odd operation. Um, and they're actually an important integral part of of the Russian state and, and, and whatever they're doing, whether it's in Ukraine or any other part of foreign policy. And finally, Mark, you've written books on Russia before. You know how bitter was the rivalry between the Soviet Union and the West during the Cold War. Given all that, was there anything from your research that really, really surprised you? Is there anything that really stands out from working on this book? So I think the two things that surprised me when I was researching this book um, on the history of the KGB operations in the West was, one, the level of forgery. I mean, I knew that there were some documents were faked, but I was quite stunned by the sheer volume of documents that were just crudely fabricated and that's why in the book, there's an appendix in the book which lists all the KGB forgeries, um, the sheer sort of industrial scale of it. That certainly stunned me. And secondly, I was surprised by the amount of money, the, the budgets that the KGB had in terms of their operations in the West. I was surprised by that. You know, you sort of always think, well, during the Cold War, the Soviet Union didn't have any money. The, the the communist economic model was not succeeding. People were starving. But actually, a lot of money, hundreds of millions, some people say billions, were given to the KGB to basically go and cause mayhem in the West. And that money obviously should have been used for the, the Russian people, but it was just sent abroad. And then there's stories about KGB secret bank accounts in the West so that certainly surprised me. And, um, you know, and then you think, well, what was the point of all this? <laughs> you know, I mean, what the hell was the point of all this? Of just, you can understand it maybe politically and ideologically at the time, if you were an ardent communist and patriot of the, of the Soviet Union, you saw the West as the enemy. You, you regarded, the, particularly the United States, as decadent and corrupt, materialistic, a small number of very rich people that controlled all the wealth, and most of the people were, were basically in poverty. And, you know, you can argue that, and now Soviet Union was a superior system that was more equitable, all the rest of it. But the problem is that, you know, what did they do to actually try and... It wasn't as if they were trying to improve the Soviet Union as a place to live. They were just playing games, trying to destabilize the West. And I often think, well, in a, in a sense, okay, it was part of their foreign policy, but what was the, the real point of doing it? They could have used all that money that the KGB was getting in a much better way, in the same way 
that the oligarchs made all their money in the 90s, that money could abuse, but that's a different story. That was Mark Hollingsworth. His book, Agents of Influence, How the KGB Subverted Western Democracies, is out now, published by One World. Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Sam Leal Green. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.